crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Nachtigal. For today's program, we're going to be talking about these mysterious explosions. There's been seven in all now in the past two weeks that have taken place in and around Tehran. Many are blaming Israel for these attacks, saying that they are, because of the locations of these attacks, they are sabotage of different nuclear infrastructure as well as missile creation, uh, creating infrastructure. And so it's pointing to Israel for these, showing that they're not random. And so we're going to get into some of those details in the context of some statements that were given to the Times of Israel and the editor-in-chief over there, the founding editor, David David Horowitz, he interviewed Shabdi Shavit, a former uh, Mossad chief back from 1989 to 1996, and he comes out and talks about Iran and talks about whether he believes Iran is going to get the bomb and what Israel should be doing about it and whether or not that Israel should be worried that Iran would actually use it. These are some really, really disconcerting uh, question, well, not questions, but responses that he gives to this question that I fear is a kind of uh, groupthink that is settling in on Israel, and it really is settling in those on those that did negotiate the Iran nuclear deal as well. And so we'll talk about that, and we're going to be talking about that also in the context of what the Bible says about what Iran is going to do, and that's important. The Bible gives us a clear picture of the behavior of the Iranian Islamic regime and how that behavior is going to continue going forward. And it can really guide decision-making. If, if somebody was going to uh, use, use Bible prophecy to guide their decision-making, we would live in a different world. We would live in a different world. But first, I want to uh, get into some of these attacks that have taken place, mention a few of those. I do have an article that's written up about this entitled Mysterious Explosions Expose Iran's Continued Nuclear Ambition. And that's what it does, uh, 100%, because it shows that Israel is now at the point where it has to, for the first time in recent memory, actually go into Iran and start destroying things and destroying them in rapid succession as well. And there might be some reasons for this, as we'll get to. I did also just want to thank Christopher Reams for taking the show for the past couple of weeks. If you haven't listened to those shows, I definitely recommend you go back and do so. Uh, he talked about one of the Lost Tribes of Israel, and he also talked about the New Yorker piece that was trying to take down King David. And he puts that in the context of the 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 widespread new policy you see now amongst the radical left in the United States, in Britain, at pulling down statues, pulling down their history. And here you have academics that are trying to use archaeology uh, or lack of archaeology, as they would see it, to pull down the historicity of King David. And that's quite ridiculous as, as he covers uh, in that. So please go ahead and go back and listen to that. He also wrote an article about it on Watch Jerusalem right now, which I, would I think you will find aggravating 
and also amusing in the way that he writes. But first, let's get to a couple of these explosions. The first one that took place back in late June, June 26th, this was about 12 miles east of Tehran. And according to satellite data of the area, which is really all we have, as in terms of knowing what happened at the locations that were hit, because you cannot trust the Iranian media when, when it comes to reporting accurately what was destroyed, how it was destroyed as well. But this place was a, a, a location that has been linked to the production of solid propellant rockets. So this is a type of fuel that's used in rockets that can be is much more effective than any type of liquid or gas, um, and it can be used in... Uh, the development of ballistic missiles and apparently this site where this attack took place and you can see it, the attack looked like it happened uh, on the surface as a fire that's gone up the hi- up a hill from it this was a site that was known to be used or suspected to be used I should say in missile assembly so this was the first attack that set off the seven and it, it was a massive explosion you've probably seen this explosion on social media uh, back when it happened. Now, there was a fake video going around that was actually an explosion of a Philadelphia uh, in the United in Philadelphia, the United States. I think it was some type of gas refinery or, or refinery of some sort that actually exploded a few years ago. Uh, that's not the right one. There is other footage uh, of of this of this one. And on this article, we actually have a, a screenshot of the image, which really did light up the sky in an, in an, ar- in an orange light. And what's interesting about this attack is it really does show that uh, Israel is fulfilling its promise that it was going to attack uh, Iran's uh, guided missile, ballistic missile technologies, wherever it finds it. And it had struck numerous targets, hundreds of targets inside uh, Syria over the past few years. And in the past year, it had moved into Iraq targeting these structures and these missile sites in Iraq. And now it seems Israel has moved to Iran for the actual manufacturing facility to get that done. The other big attack and the one that most people are talking about is the the attack at the nuclear complex at Natanz. This is, uh, even according to the Iranians, they will say that a fire took place within the building, within a building of the nuclear complex had no casualties according to them. Now this facility, this is one of the well-known facilities of Iran's nuclear program, a critical one. This building itself was constructed back in 2012 when apparently uh, Iran kind of stopped working on it between 2013, 2014, and it laid a bit dormant. And it's actually the, the place where advanced centrifuges are created. These advanced centrifuges, they make or purify or enrich the uranium from low-grade uranium to a higher-grade uranium so that it can be used in a nuclear uh, nuclear device as nuclear fuel. And so um, at this place, they produced or they were making these highly sophisticated next-generation centrifuges that can do this at a lot faster time period, or do it in a lot quicker time period rather than the older ones. And this, this uh, high-resolution image that has been taken of the destruction of this factory, and it at- looks absolutely destroyed um, on, on the image, at least two-thirds of it or three-quarters of it. This is what uh, 
a David Albright. He's the at the Institute for Science and International Security president. Um, he's he's one of the great nuclear experts of our time, highly respected. He said this quote: "It's clear." That a major to- major explosion explosion took place, destroying nearly three quarters of the main centrifuge assembly hall, generating a fire that blackened a major, major portion of this building. Uh, the blacken blackening visible where the roof had been blown away by the explosion as well. And so you had the New York Times came out and said that Israeli officials. Um, well, that is a Middle Eastern intelligence officer said Israel was directly responsible for this attack. I think uh, Avigdor Lieberman came out after this and said that whoever's leaking needs to be shut up about this. We don't want to for the world to know that we were responsible uh, for this to prevent uh, retrib- uh, saving face attacks that Iran would have to make against Israel. Um, but nevertheless, it does look like Israel was behind this, and uh, the New York Times said, quote, that it destroyed much of the above-ground parts of the facility when you suit centrifuges, delicate devices that splint at supersonic speeds, are balanced before they put are put into operation. And so what's interesting about this, and is, as is brought out by um, Judah Ari Gross in the Times of Israel is that this assembly hall was where the centrifuges were were made and put together, but not where they're actually doing the work of enriching uranium. What happens after they're done there in the assembly hall, they're taken underground for that work so that it's very hard to destroy them. And so it seems that Israel has gone ahead and tried to take them out while they were still in construction. Many, uh, some others have come out and said that it put back Iran's nuclear program by a couple of months to a year, um, but that's all guesswork. We don't know. We don't know. Now, the big question would then be, why now? Why is Israel attacking now? There's probably a couple of reasons for this. Ben Kaspert, notorious anti-Netanyahu commentator, uh, who wrote a biography of him over at Al Monitor, came out, came out and said at the end of his piece, that the leak behind these attacks were Prime Minister Netanyahu himself. He wants this out there because it's going to help him at the polls, considering Corona's back uh, in Israel. This is going to be good news for him. Um, I don't really, I don't really buy that that re- rash reasoning because it is a great risk that you take striking Iranian territory in such simultaneous manner that you are going to bring back a retribution against the state of Israel and Israeli civilians. Lives could be lost. And so uh, one thing that he has shown time and time again is that he does believe in securing the Jewish state. Uh, Whether you like his other policies or not, he's consistently put the the safety of the Jewish state when it comes to military defense above all. And that's why he keeps on getting voted in, one of the reasons. And so it seems like he's not just attacking Iran willy-nilly, because why didn't he do it before? Well, there's another reason as well. Uh, maybe he feels like uh, the prime minister does now that he has the United States backing to do this, or at least that backing is public. John Bolton, the former security advisor that I was kind of taken back by, that he decided to jump ship away from the Trump camp, uh, Trump uh, presidency, and really turn into an enemy of of the state in the way that he, um, while the president is still in office, is kind of leaking 
these type of discussions that that or dis- private discussions that he would have had with foreign leaders, which is going to make it so much harder for the president to go ahead and have a confidential discussion with other foreign leaders when they know that that conversation might be leaked out. Nevertheless, he wrote he wrote this book, and um, in it he said that he was told by President Trump to go ahead and give the okay to Prime Minister Netanyahu if he needs to attack Iran over the nuclear file. He said this, quote, You tell Bibi that if he uses force, I will back him. I told him that, but you tell him again, Trump said, unprompted by me. Those are the words of Bolton. So that came out end of June, this book. At least, at least the the leaked copy or the the or the first copies that were given to journalists, stories started to come out about this. This was one of them, that President Trump backed a strike on the nuclear facilities of the Iranians. Talk about a, a breath of fresh air from the Obama administration, where the Obama administration deliberately kept the nuclear talks secret and the and the content of the nuclear talks secret from the Israeli prime minister and Israel in general because he was worried that Israel would would attack Iran, attack Iran's nuclear facilities. But here you have a president in the United States that actually is backing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in this. And so now with the backing, public backing, or with Trump's backing of a military strike made public, Maybe Israel feels more confident that the U.S. would be compelled then to come to Israel's aid if Iran chooses to retaliate. But I think the the so that's another reason of why. But I think the the most important reason of why Israel is attacking right now is because that's what Israel has to do, because Iran is still at this point hell bent on acquiring a nuclear weapon. That's what they want to do. That's what they've always wanted to do. That's why they wanted the nuclear deal, so that they could have the funds, the resources, and even the official nod from the international community that after 10 years, they could produce a nuclear weapon. And now that the United States has pulled out of the nuclear deal, Iran is using that for justification and has done for the past two years to increase its nuclear, uh, its production of nuclear capable, well, nuclear fuel and the other facets of nuclear weapons. That's what it's been doing. It's breaking right now every single facet of the nuclear deal and sanctions have not been snapped back on them. <clears throat> yes, they have by the United States, but not by any of the other European nations, Russia, China, and so on. And so under that guise, right now they're breaking the nuclear deal and they are getting away with it, or they were, at least until the last couple of weeks. And so this really does show that Iran, uh, these attacks by Israel, shows that Iran is moving towards a bomb, is using towards, is moving towards a nuclear weapon, and that Israel is trying to stop it. And it's going to the point now of striking inside Iranian territory, even though that might mean that Israel is then attacked. Now, this is serious. This is serious for sure. It does show that Iranian nuclear weapon is an imminently real threat. Now, is that a bad thing? I don't think anyone doubts that that would be a bad thing if Iran got a nuclear weapon. 
But what we are seeing, and for the first time, I think what I've seen from at least an Israeli intelligence officer, of course, there were some people for the nuclear deal in Israel, plenty of people for that, and plenty amongst the American Jews were for the nuclear deal, mainly because they were told by the Obama administration, if you're a Democrat, you're either for me on the nuclear deal or you're out. You're out of favor. And so there are plenty now that were for the nuclear uh, for the for the nuclear deal with Iran that has plenty of flaws in it of and by itself, not including everything else that it, it gave a- Iran access to in terms of funds for uh, its military and for the IRGC and such. But there was uh, this interview that was published on July 8th, just a couple of days ago, again, in the Times of Israel, And it was with uh, David Horowitz and the former Mossad chief, Shabti Shavit, probably butchering that pronunciation. Uh, It's entitled, Former Mossad Chief, Iran can't be stopped in nuke bid, but can be deterred. There is some of this that is deeply worrying. And if this thinking is perpetuating in Israeli society, it it is worrying because it it removes the real danger of the threat of an Iranian nuclear weapon. I'm going to go down now. He talks about other things in this interview, but I'm going to read a couple of quotes about what this uh, chief spy thought about uh, or thinks about an Iranian weapon and Iranian motivation. Of course, that's the big thing, right? If they get a nuclear weapon, will they use it? Nuclear weapons are all over the earth right now. Nobody's used them for for a long, long time, 70 years. So who's to say Iran's going to use them? This is the question from David Horowitz. Let's talk about Iran a little. You write as though it's too late. It's a done deal that they'll reach the stage of declaring that they're a nuclear power. And then he answers this. And he says here, I'll just drop down his answer. So the worst case scenario is that the Iranians won't give up on their their decision, their determination to attain an independent nuclear weapons capability. Their rationale is not necessarily, quote, I want to have a bomb in order to drop it on Tel Aviv, end quote. Their prime rationale says, quote, we need to attain immunity. And the moment we have nuclear weapons, we've attained immunity. Nobody will mess with us. So notice here, they don't want a nuclear weapon to use it. They don't want to have one so that they will use it and drop it on Tel Aviv. They want it for immunity from other attacks from other, from other nations. And he goes through a couple of examples. Look at the case of North Korea. Clinton tried. The Bush era, they never stopped talking about it. And yet North Korea not only kept its capabilities in the nuclear missile fields, but it's continuously working on new technologies in those areas. The Iranians are determined to create immunity for themselves. And when they talk of immunity, it's not only against Israel. It's also against the United States and Erdogan. But more than anything, it's against Iraq. They didn't emerge with flying colors from the eight-year war. The results of the war were the trigger for the Iranians to make the strategic decision to go for the whole gamut of non-conventional weapons, not only nuclear, nuclear, ballistic missiles, chemical weapons, biological cyber too, and professional terminology is part of the non-conventional armory. So he's saying mostly they want a nuclear weapon. More than anything, it's against Iraq. That is just dumbfounding to me. 
to to hear somebody say that when they've virtually walked over Iraq already. Iraq's in the bag. You might have this little bit of resistance right now. I think you had some arrests by the terrorism unit in Iraq against Kataib Hezbollah two weeks ago. But just a little reminder of who's in control. There was the chief, one of the chief Iraqi des- uh, journalists that spoke out against what Iran was doing in Iraq. He was murdered last week in Iraq. That's the type of power the Iranians have there. So I don't think that H- Iran wants a nuclear weapon so that it can have um, some type of leverage over Iraq. Then he says this, if Iran gets the bomb, it also beats Turkey. Their leaders meet, they visit, it's all lovely, but basically those two powers are competing for Middle East hegemony. Indeed they are, I'm not going to disagree with that. And then there's Israel, he says. Again, I'm not one of those who say that the moment they have the bomb, they will physically threaten Israel's existence. No. But a state with the bomb can use it to create all kinds of axes of influence to advance its interest. This is true. This is true. When you have nuclear weapons, a whole world opens up to you for what you might do and what you could do. Just think about the the belligerent, dangerous behavior of the Iranian regime if they had a nuclear weapon and they dangled the threat of using the nuclear weapon. That would be it would change the way that you deal with them. Imagine their use of conventional weapons how they would attack more boldly if they knew that they, you were worried about them using a nuclear weapon on you. And you just didn't know if they were going to use it. The Bible speaks about, in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40, this is the prophecy that we talk about with regards to Iran quite a lot. It talks about a king of the south whose foreign policy is dominated by the word push, like an animal pushes, like, an, like a, a horned beast pushes. And it pushes at other powers. And that's what you see Iran doing right now, the most belligerent force there is on the planet, who pushes, pushes, pushes until it's said, no, that's enough. That's the way it works. Now imagine an an Islamic regime with a nuclear weapon. It can push a whole lot more before there's pushback because the power it's pushing against will be worried about the use of that nuclear weapon. So that is true, and it is an interesting point to consider Because the Bible says that they're going to push the king of the south will, which is this radical Islamic regime led from Iran. They are going to push at other powers. They're going to push at a united Europe eventually. And that push is going to the result in their destruction, uh, as the Bible puts it. And so maybe they will have a nuclear weapon for a time and not use it. But let's not get it. Let's not think that they would never use it. Let's not think that they would, that they act and that their logic and that their rationale is the same as other nuclear powers. He says this, continuing the quote now. This is again the former Shin Bethead. When you have the bomb, you can use it to create new networks of connections to enlarge your influence. So while I don't share the opinion that the moment the Iranians have the bomb, they'll physically use it, it elevates them. In terms of influence and status, it helps their strategic capabilities in the region and beyond. And that's exactly right. That is true. So then he talks about um, uh, where does, in terms, of, in terms of their influence and how it could be extended. Then Horowitz has a question. Where does that leave us and when should we do what? Then he writes, the Obama, or then he says, uh, the Mossad chief, former, 
The Obama, Obama agreement intended to rein in nuclear, Iran's nuclear capability and bought us 15 years, in which all kinds of things could happen. Now, with Trump having withdrawn from the agreement, the Iranians have enough enriched uranium for at least one bomb and in a few months. So he's blaming uh, President Trump here. Uh, then he says this, quote, They can break out? Is the question? Yes, break out. They could hold a press conference and tell the world we have it. And nobody is going to say, I want to check in order to be convinced. We, in that situation, have to create real deterrence against Iran. We're not going to be the crazy kid in the neighborhood. We don't need to announce to the Iranians, to the world, listen, we don't want the Iranians to get the bomb. What would that mean? That we'll embark on a military operation to destroy what they have. I don't think that's the right policy. Well, Israel's doing that now, trying to counter it before they have it. Then he says this, I don't think that's the right policy because when you threaten, you have to be able to act. Do you see a situation where the first country to use a nuclear weapon since Hiroshima would be the great power that is the state of Israel? Hard to see. So the fallback is to create real deterrence. That means we have to ensure we have the capabilities so that if you Iranians go out of your minds one day and want to use the bomb against us, take into account that Iran will cease to exist. The price you will have to pay if you want to utilize the capability against us will be prohibitive. Then Horowitz says, you're using Cold War terms. Mossad chief, yes. Yes. Can you believe that? He believes that the policy of mutually assured destruction... Uh, goes into Iran's thinking. He believes Iran's like Russia. Iran's like China. Iran's like France or the other nations that the UK or anyone else that has a nuclear weapon that they know in terms of if they use that nuclear weapon on a power that has a nuclear weapon, that'll be their destruction. And that's that calculus is prohibitive of them having a first strike. Now, the big question is, and whether you believe this man or not, the question should be, is that true? Is Iran a rational actor? Now, people would like to think they are. President Obama spoke like they were a rational actor, yet I don't believe that he... Uh, believed that they were a rational actor for one bit. I think he understood what they wanted to do. And I think he understood that they would be willing to do it no matter the cost. Now, we don't seem to think that way today, but you look around the Middle East and you look at which religion is willing to go and blow themselves up. And if there is a nation that believes in that radical uh, theology, oh, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they blow themselves up in, in terms of using a nuclear weapon, even if it meant their destruction? And really, the Islamic Republic of Iran is alone as in terms of a national state power that believes this way. And this is a very important point that I guess this Mossad chief is overlooking or doesn't believe is real, and that many others... In the world today, they don't think that Iran would have and use its religious motivation to end up using the bomb. Really, you need to look at what the religion and this even the specific branch of Islam that the leader of Iran follows. The Shiite branch, uh, basically in our language, is Twelverism. 
Now, 12 is believed that their figure called the Mahdi, Mahdi or the 12th Imam, is the last of a dozen of divine Imams who are heirs to the Islamic nation. And that's what Iran has tried to uh, produce, this is Islam, Islamic nation that isn't settling on the borders of, Israel, of Iran. That's why they want to push into Iraq and elsewhere. They want to control the whole Muslim world and then going out from there. Now, their writings say that the Maori, he was born in the middle of the 9th century, but then disappeared from humanity, and that he'll only reappear during a time of global calamity. During an apoc- apocalyptic war, he'll return, bring justice to the world by raising the flag of Shiite Islam in every corner of the world. Now, chaos, chaos is a prerequisite to their messianic figure's return. And many Twelvers believe that they can hasten his reappearance by intentionally stirring up chaos. This is what political strategist Joel Rosenberg said. Quote, in order to bring about the Islamic Messiah, the leaders actually believe they need to create bloody carnage, the death of millions of people, in order to create the conditions for the Maori to bring peace. So that is fundamental to Twelverism. It doesn't matter if you win the war as long as you start it. And to say then that Iran wouldn't use a bomb, I think, is betraying their their religious beliefs, at least in terms of the majority of Iranians. Between 90 and 95% of Iran's 83 million people identify as Shiite, <clears throat> and 85% of those are Twelvers. Ruhollah Khomeini, he, the patriarch of Iran's revolution was a Twelver. The current Supreme Leader, he's a Twelver as well. This is what Khamenei, he said um, about this doctrine relating to Iran. He told his people this quote back in 2012, The issue of Imam Mahdi is of utmost importance, and his reappearance has been clearly stated in the holy religion of Islam. We must prepare the environment for the coming, so that our great leader will come. So, preparing the environment. What's that about? Well, it's preparing the environment of chaos, so that he can come back, as they would see it. And so, that's why we need to watch Iran's quest for a bomb. And not just say, yep, they'll get it. But they won't use it because nobody else has used it. Well, which of the carriers that have a nuclear weapon right now have a religious belief that fundamental to the return of their Messiah is chaos, a chaotic environment that is prepared by the people that believe that religion? Who else is like that? Who else has a religion where it doesn't matter if you win the war as long as you start it and has a nuclear weapon? No one. Mutually assured destruction has not been tested with a nation that has this fanatic ideology. And yet you have Mossad chief, a former Mossad chief, much smarter than I, coming out and saying, ah, Don't worry, they're rational. Their rational actors, just like us. You have President Obama saying, ah, they're rational actors, just like us. Well, they might be rational until they get something 
that can bring about the chaos that will prepare for their Messiah's coming. In 2006, Watch Jerusalem Editor-in-Chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, he discussed this, and he said this, quote, This should alarm all of us. Imagine, Iran is the world's top terror-sponsoring nation. It's about to get nuclear bombs, and its leaders believe a nuclear war will speed the return of their version of the Messiah. That means they are eager for a nuclear war. That's a little bit different. That's far different than what you hear from the former uh, Mossad chief. He says they wouldn't use it. Based on biblical prophecy, we know that they are eager, and their own history, and their own religion. We know that they are eager to speed the return, or eager for nuclear war. And once you start a nuclear war, how do you stop it, Mr. Flurry writes? Could any statement be more explosive? This is something to consider, and you do see it every now and then. There will be somebody that writes an article that reminds us about the Twelverism belief of Shia Islam that the leadership of the Islamic regime adheres to. And it is refreshing. It's a wake-up call. It's far more important than listening to what this former Mossad chief says. And while most 90% of what he says is right, he's off on the biggest point. He's off on this point of whether Iran would actually go ahead and use this bomb once they get it, as he believes they will. He has no doubt in his mind that Iran is going to get a bomb. And that should be scary, and I think they are close to it, the fact that Israel right now is is striking these different facilities inside Iran through various means. Now this, while it's, it is interesting, because if you look into what the Bible actually says about when the Messiah will come, it will come. He will come following a period of worldwide cataclysm, and he will come after the Iranians kick it off. Whether that's with a nuclear strike or not, the Bible doesn't say that conclusively, but they are the ones that pushed the world into World War III, and so they are. They are going to start off this, this cascade of, of events that lead to the coming of the true Messiah, not the 12th Imam coming out of a well somewhere, but the Messiah coming down in all glory, laying his feet on the Mount of Olives. That is going to happen, and it does come after a worldwide war, and it does come after one set off by the, the king of the south, as it says there in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40, we have a, a book that is written by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, on that. It's entitled The King of the South. It goes through this prophecy quite a lot. It looks back at, at why uh, and how Iran fulfills this prophecy and has been for, for some time. And also who it starts attacking and the, what the response will be. It talks about the time frame of how long this war is going to last. And yes, it is going to be a period of unparalleled suffering on the world. Um, but following that, then we have the fulfillment of so many other biblical prophecies about this wonderful world to come where it will be the end of war. And in a way, just looking at this and what Iran is doing, and as they're preparing for a nuclear 
a nuclear bomb and doing all they can to get one and knowing the fact that they are going to be the nation that pushes the world to start this World War III, it is in some ways hopeful because it's the last time it's going to happen. If you believe those other prophecies in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4, the end of uh, warfare, implements of warfare, peace across the whole globe, that's coming. That's coming. And it's coming at the end of this war that, that Iran does create. And so what can we do right now? What can we do to prepare for that? Certainly there's a lot that you can do to prepare for what's coming. I'm not talking about preparing weapons yourself or, or getting lots of food or digging a big bunker or even going out there on the front lines to take down Iran. The Bible says that Iran is going to push the world towards war. That is coming unless national repentance takes place, which seems highly unlikely at this point. But individual repentance certainly can happen, and, and that's the hope. That's the hope for us at this point. I really do think that you should request this free book, The King of the South, especially if you're living in Israel. Listen to this. It will explain to you what's happened with Iran over the past 40 years. It'll have some zinger statements in there that have come to pass, have forecasts that have been true, and it's got things that can help. Uh, it's got certain things that you can look for to know where we are in terms of biblical prophecy. And it also talks about the hope as well that comes at the end of this clash. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, please do go ahead and, and write your feedback to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il if you have any, and I'll respond to that as quick as I can. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>